This is VOA News via remote. I'm Tommy McNeil. Russian authorities are opening more military enlistment offices near Russia's borders in an apparent effort to intercept Russian men of fighting age who are trying to avoid getting called up to fight in Ukraine. The Saratov Regional Office and officials said that a new draft office opened Thursday at a checkpoint in Russia's border with Kazakhstan. Another military enlistment center was to open at a crossing in Astrakhan, a region also on the border with Kazakhstan, earlier this week. Makeshift Russian draft offices were set up near a border crossing into Georgia and on Russia's border with Finland. Russian officials say they would hand-call up notices to all eligible men who were trying to leave the country. Russia planned to annex more of Ukraine on Friday in an escalation of the seven-month war. That was expected to isolate the Kremlin further, draw more international punishment, and bring Ukraine extra military, political, and economic support. The annexation and planned celebratory concerts and rallies in Moscow and the occupied territories would come just days after voters supposedly approved Moscow-managed referendums that Ukrainian and Western officials have denounced as illegal, forced, and rigged. A Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, told reporters Thursday that four regions of Ukraine, Luhansk, Donetsk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia Regia, would be folded into Russia during a Kremlin ceremony attended by Russian President Vladimir Putin, who is expected to give a major speech. Peskov said the region's pro-Moscow administrators would sign treaties to join Russia in the Kremlin's ornate St. George's Hall. There is more at voanews.com. Again, voanews.com. This is VOA News. South Korea, U.S. and Japanese warships have launched their first anti-submarine drills in five years after North renewed ballistic missile tests this week. South Korea says Friday's one-day trilateral training off the Korean Peninsula's east coast is meant to cope with the North Korean push to advance its ability to fire missiles from submarines. North Korea has been building bigger submarines, including a nuclear-powered one, and testing sophisticated missiles that can be fired from them in recent years. The North's recent five missile launches, the first such test in, in a month, also came before the U.S., and after U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris visited South Korea. Meanwhile, U.S. President Joe Biden said on Thursday in uh, on the telling visiting leaders from more than a dozen Pacific Island countries that the U.S. was committed to bolstering its presence in the region and becoming a more collaborative partner as they face the existential threat of climate change. The president addressed the leaders who gathered in Washington for a summit as the White House looks to improve relations in the Pacific amid growing U.S. concern about China's growing military and economic influence. Biden delivered his remarks as his administration unveiled its Pacific strategy and outline of the White House's plan to assist the region's leader on pressing issues like climate change, maritime security, and protecting the area from overfishing. The administration also pledged that the U.S. would add $810 million in new aid for Pacific Island nations over the next decade, including $130 million on efforts to stymie the impacts of climate change. Hurricane Ian has regained some strength after exiting Florida and taking at aim at South Carolina. 
The National Hurricane Center said the storm spent only a few hours as a weakened tropical storm over Florida before it, it spun up into a Category 1 hurricane on Thursday in the Atlantic Ocean. Rescue crews were wading through water and using boats to rescue Florida residents stranded in the wake of Hurricane Ian. The Orange County Fire Department posted videos and photos of crews in a flooded neighborhood in the Orlando area. At least four people in Florida were confirmed dead on the state's eastern coast. Forecasters have issued a hurricane warning for coastal South Carolina and southeastern North Carolina ahead of another landfall Friday. Recapping our top story, Russian authorities are opening more military enlistment offices near Russia's border in an apparent effort to intercept Russian men of fighting age who are trying to avoid getting called up to fight in Ukraine. There is more at voanews.com. Again, voanews.com via remote. I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barton in Washington. Today is Friday, September 30th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Kenyan President William Ruto delivers his first speech to the country's parliament. Be the loyal, hardworking, devoted president of every Kenyan, and my administration will serve all without regard to any distinction, real or imagined. A Zimbabwe writer and filmmaker granted a suspended sentence but says freedom of speech is at stake in the country. Zambia and China hold first ever forum to promote investment. Millions of livelihoods in the Democratic Republic of Congo are threatened by plant oil and gas exploration. Senegal's president considers amnesty for some of his political opponents. This amnesty was already foreseen because uh, Makisal used to say that uh, he's not against it. But uh, the question is, uh, what's this amnesty for? And $30 million in loans for African students studying in the United States. Those stories plus Samson O'Malley's sports are coming up on Daybreak Africa. President William Ruto has promised to transform Kenya. Speaking during a joint sitting of the National Assembly and Senate, Ruto promised to be a hardworking and devoted president for every Kenyan. But opposition leaders criticized Ruto's speech, saying the president did not have much to say. Maureen Ojiambo reports. President William Ruto had the chance to address the inaugural session of the 13th Parliament following the August 9th general elections. Ruto called on members of Parliament for support to ensure they deliver to Kenyans. Be the loyal, hard-working, devoted president of every Kenyan, and my administration will serve all without regard to any distinction, real or imagined. Certainly, service delivery under my administration shall be impartial, regardless of political affiliation or voter preference. Kenya is our home, and we remain united as one strong family. For these reasons, I want to persuade you that the legislative agenda I start here to prosecute deserves the bipartisan support of this house. The 13th Parliament has recorded the highest number of re-elected members of Parliament ever. 
in the National Assembly, a record of 193 members have been re-elected, 50 more than in 2017, while in the Senate, 17 senators have been re-elected. Ruto says Kenyans have demonstrated trust in leaders and that they should raise the bar in service to the nation and accountability to the electorate. My administration is committed to investing in the requisite enablers and infrastructure to provide a sound foundation for its execution. Ruto's speech, however, has received criticism from opposition members. Sunna East Member of Parliament, Jeanette Mohammed, ridiculed President William Ruto's speech for being too short and failing to offer details. It has never happened. Looks like there were no serious issues to discuss with the Kenyan people. But, but more importantly, the president looked like somebody who's still in campaign mood, still talking about issues of our hustlers, still talking about the issues of bottom-up in the judiciary, still talking about uh, who was the opposition candidate or who was government candidate. Those are now things that are dead and buried. Nominated Prime Cabinet Secretary Masalia Mudavadi has, however, reacted positively to Ruto's address. Uh, the economy was a very serious uh, agenda item during the campaign trail. The Kenyans voted for us because they realized we were talking on the issues that were of concern to them. So we have no choice but to work hard and work smart and collectively to revamp the economy. I like the president's remarks on one thing. He did not mince his words. He said it as it is. President Ruto also said the government must make dramatic change in policy to reduce the country's huge debt. Reporting for viewers, Daybreak Africa, Ayamorino Jimbo in Nairobi, Kenya. The president of Senegal, Maki Sall, this week asked the country's justice ministry to investigate the possibility of granting amnesty to some of his political opponents who were sentenced for corruption. Reuters news agency reported on Thursday that President Sall made the request during a cabinet meeting on Wednesday. Senegal's two prominent opposition politicians are former Dakar mayor Khalifa Sall and Karim Wad, the son of former President Abdullah Wad. They were jailed on corruption charges in 2018 and 2015, respectively. Although released from prison in 2019, they were both prevented from contesting the 2019 election, which President Saul won. Senegal's next presidential election is in 2024, and it is not clear if President Saul will seek another term. Senegalese political analyst Ibrahim Khan tells me that it is not known which crimes the president's amnesty would cover, and it could also be seen as an attempt to divide the opposition. Well, this amnesty was already foreseen because uh, Makisal used to say that uh, he's not against it. But uh, the question is, uh, what's this amnesty for? You know, according to the law, you're not amnesting persons. You are amnestying facts. You are making sure that the facts that led people to prison and to trial, those facts are now considered nil and void so that the person can restart his uh, normal life. Now, the question is, which facts will be amnestied? Yes, the amnesty may benefit Khalifa Sal and uh, Karim Wad, but amnesty may also benefit people in the other side because many of them were involved in crimes. You know, we, are there. we have members of the parliament who were involved in uh, traffic of passports. 
some of them uh, in uh, money laundering and many, many other things. So we need to know more about which facts are amnested to be able to really say if it is a genuine action of the president or it's still a political strategy of the president leading to the next uh, general election in uh, February 2024. Talking about next election, the president is talking about granting amnesty. What does this mean for himself? Because I think most Senegalese would like to know whether the president is considering to run again. I think when you look at this in the political context of Senegal, you can maybe say that this is a new strategy of the president trying to avoid this uh, mano a mano with uh, uh, Sonko. Because so far, all the election that was held in Senegal, the local, the legislative, you know, is just increasing the popularity of Sonko because uh, Khalifa Sal and uh, Karim Wad are not able, legally speaking, to participate in those elections. And, you know, from one election to another one, the popularity of uh, Sonko is increasing. Does this amnesty cover Sonko? Probably, yes. It will cover Sonko. But when I say probably yes, but it may be probably no, we don't know the fact that are being amnested. Because one of the cases that Sonko is uh, dealing with at the judiciary is personal life issues. It's about his relation with a particular lady. Because we don't know which facts are covered. So I can answer clearly that question. Ibrahima, we thank you very much, as usual, for your analysis. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. Ibrahim Khan is the Senegalese political analyst. He was speaking with us from the capital, Dakar. Zimbabwe writer and filmmaker Sisi Damga Remga says the government is trying to restrict freedom of speech to keep citizens from engaging in politics. This after a Harare court on Thursday found her guilty of holding up a sign in 2020 demanding institutional reform. The government says she was demonstrating without permission with the intention to incite violence. According to the French news agency, the court also fined Sisi about two U.S. dollars and gave her a six-month suspended sentence on condition that she does not commit similar offense within six months. From the Zimbabwe capital, Horari, CC tells me that the constitutional right of Zimbabweans to freely express themselves is at stake. The suspension is for five years, and I think that is designed to police my behavior and uh, my expression over these five years which is a long time to have one's expression police. And it is said that one's freedom of expression is policed in the way the magistrate's court has done. You were found guilty for what? Holding up a sign? Is that correct? Yes, uh, a poster with some messages written on it. The messages were basically about wanting a better Zimbabwe, wanting reform of Zimbabwean institutions and uh, freeing of people who had been held without bail and without trial. So uh, the court found that this was an incitement to public violence, breach of the peaceful act of bigotry. Are the people of Zimbabwe, are the citizens allowed to protest under your constitution? Under the constitution, the citizens of Zimbabwe are allowed to protest and uh, petition the government peacefully. Of course, under the same constitution, such protests may not be done in a violent way or that infringes on the rights of any other person. I guess the government would say perhaps it was right 
because did you get permission to hold up a sign? There is a requirement to inform the police if you want to hold a demonstration. And so a demonstration and a meeting, again, is a question of interpretation. These are the things that were tried, and in that trial, the court found that I had committed a crime. So what are you going to do during the suspension? I mean, in other words, as you said, it's intended to silence you. So what, what are you going to be doing? I do not make a career out of holding up signs. That happens on particular occasions when I deem it is necessary, and that has not been necessary very often in, uh, well, it was necessary at that time about two years ago when journalists were receiving a lot of corruption and there was a call for a demonstration. But this does not happen often. I guess what I'm asking is, uh, is this going to stop you from uh, activism? I don't see myself as an activist. I'm a writer and a filmmaker, and uh, therefore I am used to expressing myself. And uh, I rarely express myself by holding up signs. And the reasons for my having done it in 2020 are in the past. How would you describe the state of human rights or civil rights, your right as a citizen? How would you describe that in Zimbabwe? I am concerned about the status of rights in Zimbabwe. does not appear to be a great respect for constitutional rights of the citizens. Cece, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us on Daybreak Africa. Thank you. Have a good day. Sisi Damgarimka is a Zimbabwe writer and filmmaker. She was speaking with us from the Zimbabwe capital, Horare. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Friday, September 30th. And still to come on our program, Samson O'Malley Sports. Zambia and China concluded on Thursday the first ever forum in the capital, Lusaka, aimed at deepening trade. China is Zambia's biggest partner with more than $4 billion U.S. dollars investment annually. The forum, which ended yesterday, was held under the theme China-Zambia Trade and Investment Forum in the New Era, All-Weather, All-Dimensional, and High-Quality Friendship. Kathy Short reports from Lusaka. More than 300 Chinese and Zambian companies participated in the event with another 90 online. For years, Beijing and Lusaka have set up economic zones to boost trade and investment. Speaking at the forum, Zambian President Hagainde Hichilema called for more joint ventures between the two countries. We cannot continue importing medicines, basic medicines, 57 years plus after independence. This has been a serious omission, and we want to remedy this by manufacturing right here. One of our targets from this forum is to agree steps on how we can increase occupancies in the investments that have already been put up. Chinese ambassador to Zambia, Du Xiaohui, said the forum was meant to build a new platform to explore new possibilities for practical cooperation. China is willing to make joint efforts with Zambia to continue to provide solid infrastructure conditions for the three multifunctional economic zones related to China to make them platforms for new Chinese investment in Zambia. 
Zambian economist Bright Chizonde says the gathering is a significant step towards stronger and more meaningful investments and political cooperation between Zambia and China. But he also notes that Beijing may be getting the best of the bargain. Both countries uh, stand to benefit from the increased investment in Zambia, but China has always been getting the better uh, deal out of this relationship with Zambia. For example, over the past decade, massive amounts of copper and timber have been exploited from Zambia with little economic benefits for the local people. Chizonde also hopes the new administration in Zambia will ensure that workers' rights are protected and promoted in Chinese investments. Zambia owes China, the country's largest bilateral creditor, 6.6 billion U.S. dollars in debt. Economists say that's almost 75% of the total amount which was recently restructured under an IMF credit facility worth 1.3 billion U.S. dollars. The issue was not discussed at the gathering. Relations between the two sides have cooled since President Hagainde Hichilema took power a year ago as he has forged closer links to nations including the U.S. and the U.K. I'm Kathy Short for VOA News in Lusaka, Zambia. The environmental group Greenpeace Africa has released a report saying oil and gas exploration in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo could expose more than one million people to pollution and disease. The report says the planned selling of eastern land blocks that extend into a famous gorilla reserve would also threaten wildlife and food security while fueling conflict, poverty and corruption. Mohamed Yusuf reports from VOA's Africa News Center in Nairobi. The communities living in areas earmarked for 30 oil and gas exploration blocks in eastern Congo accuse the government of keeping them in the dark and express fear of losing their livelihoods when companies start drilling the area for fossil fuels. Representatives from Greenpeace Africa and partner organizations visited about 30 villages in July to gauge the community's awareness of the planned exploration and how they intend to protect their land and livelihoods. Mbong Aki Fokwa Safak, head of communication at Greenpeace Africa, said many communities are not aware of the government's plan to auction their land. Thought of the government thinking about auctioning their lands for, for oil was really um, for them a shock. Uh, they were unaware, so they didn't know that this uh, was underway, and which is quite shocking given how much um, the government has said its plans is really to put the people ahead of everything else. Bantu Lukambo works with innovation for the development and protection of the environment, an NGO monitoring the welfare of the communities living around Virungu National Park. He says no one asked the communities what they thought of the oil and gas drilling project on their land. He says when the government wants to undertake such exploration, it is supposed to have public input. But our government does not want us to participate in such a process. He says even our parliament members are not included in the decision-making process, and that creates a lot of fear in us. DRC President Felix Shisekedi defended his government's plan while speaking at the United Nations General Assembly last week, saying all discovery will bring economic development to his people. Hydrocarbons Minister Didier Bundimbu 
Nto Mwanga, speaking at the Africa Oil Week conference in Senegal early this month, said the DRC has received two offers for the oil blocks and said any exploration will follow environmental guidelines. Lukambo is doubtful that will be the case. If the exploration begins, he says, all the fish in the lake will die and those populations living through fishing will be in trouble. The 20-page report from Greenpeace urges the government to hold the projects and encourage alternative investments in renewable energy sources. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. A part of the Clinton Global Initiative called 8B Education Investment Partners announced this week that it is joining with Nelnet Bank to extend $30 million in loans over a three-year period to African students pursuing studies in the United States. Lydia Kemoto Bossier is 8B Education's foundation and CEO. She tells viewers Carol Van Dam that currently African students have no access to financing when they come to the United States, adding the world is under investor in African brilliance. Banks across the African continent do not have a student financing product. Banks in the U.S. who have student financing products have requirements around credit rating and cosigner or collateral that are not possible for African students. So the first achievement of this partnership is inclusion. It is enabling borrowers who are otherwise locked out of access to the financing they need to take advantage of the schools that are providing offers to them and to enroll in them. It is to enable that inclusion for them to take advantage of that opportunity. And the second thing is really meeting the needs of the schools that are both our clients and Nelnet clients because the schools are looking for diversity in student pipelines for international students beyond the usual destinations or um, the usual sources of students like the Indian subcontinent or China by enabling smart students who receive offers to also have financing, they then show up in school and diversify the international student body. Sure. So it serves both sides. Is this the first time a U.S. bank has stepped up to make this kind of big investment? This is the first time an American bank has done this, and we are really grateful. That was Lady Abossier, 8B Education Investment Founder and CEO. She was speaking to my colleague, Carol Van Dam from Ithaca, New York. Time now for Daybreak Africa Sports and Gary Samson O'Malley in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Friday morning to you, Samson. Good Friday morning to you too, James. We begin the sports with the draws for the CAF African Nations Championship scheduled to hold on Saturday, the 1st of October, 2022. The star-studded list made up of former winners will be in Algiers, Algeria for the final draw. The list of the legends that will participate in the draws include Mohamed Nashnouj from Libya, Ayman 
Mark Luthi from Tunisia and Robert Kidiaba from DR Congo. Others include Al Belmolini Diabo from Algeria, Haitham Mustafa and Mohamed Tahir from Sudan, as well as Emmanuel Agiem Badu from Ghana. For the first time, 18 teams have qualified for the competition scheduled for the 13th of January to the 4th of February 2023 in Algeria. In beach soccer news, Uganda national beach soccer team suffered their first defeat at the ongoing Kasafa Beach Soccer Championship after falling to Egypt on Wednesday. In the final Group B game played at the Beach Arena in Durban, South Africa, Egypt swept aside the sand cranes of Uganda, winning 7-2. The game was a decider on who tops the group, given the fact that both teams had won their opening two games and had already secured semi-final slots. Uganda's sand cranes will face Senegal on Friday. Friday in the semi-finals. Angelo Shirinzi is the head coach of Uganda Sun Beach Cranes. For today, under pressure, you see that the players lack of experience and they lose everything, they forget everything, you know, and then we see this result. But I'm, I think this is the, the way, the part of learning and to improving. The other semi-finals at the Kasafa Beach Soccer Championship will see Egypt facing Mozambique. In handball news, the draws for the 25th Women's Senior Afghan Nations Handball Championship has been concluded. Angola, DR Congo, Cape Verde, Algeria have been placed in Group A, while Tunisia were drawn in Group B alongside Congo, Guinea, Morocco and Egypt. Group C will have Cameroon, Senegal, Madagascar, Ivory Coast slogging it out. The Senior Afghan Nations Handball Championship for Women will serve as a qualification event for the 2023 IHF Women's World Championship, which will run from November the 9th to the 19th in Dakar. Staying with handball news, Tunisia's Osporon Sportive de Tunis on Wednesday were drawn in Group D alongside FC Barcelona of Spain and Club Ministros of Mexico for the 2022 International Handball Federation Men's Super Globe Championship scheduled to take place from October 18th to the 23rd in Saudi Arabia's Daman. The 12 participating teams were divided into four pots of three teams each. The winners of each group will qualify for the semi-finals due for October 22 and the final for October the 20th. Third. And now to basketball news, where Angolan Eduardo Mingas on Thursday announced the end of his glorious playing career at the age of 43. The former power forward enjoyed a career that spanned over two decades ago, both at the club and national team level. And that's it on Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, James, in Washington. Thank you, Samson. Have a nice weekend. And that's it for this Friday, September 30th edition of Daybreak Africa.